for us, one of the focuses was to really appeal to an audience, what I call the awakened traveller, which really is the conscious traveller. It's often quite a challenge to convince people to really slow down. And if there's a place and a continent to do that, it really is Africa. You're listening to a podcast by Butterfield and Robinson. <laughs> there you are. Wow. Hard to pin down, but we found you. Yes, yes. The pleasure is mine. I'm glad we've managed to connect, Michelle. Now, I've never used Zencaster before, so this is purely audio, right? That's correct. <laughs> we can't see so, anything what's going well, on. Well, words, I didn't need to take off my pajamas that I've been wearing since... Uh, since uh, you didn't have to get dressed for this interview. I went, I went to my <laughs> shower, scrubbed up. Well, I'm glad we got you up. <laughs> so, Bex, I should jump in here now to get, because uh, we've we've put the cart in front of the horse and uh, I haven't introduced you. So (laughs) (laughs) take us on your journey. I'm talking tonight with Bex Ndlovu, founder of African Bush Camps. We met Bex some 20 years ago when he was a professional guide in Zimbabwe. And today he's founder of African Bush Camps and offers these phenomenal experiential safaris and is one of our favorite and preferred suppliers for for the offering in 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 southern africa across zimbabwe zambia and botswana so bex take us take us through some of your story well you know um as you say it's been over 20 years um gosh when i look back you know i left school some 24 25 years ago and i think i had my professional guides license by the time we met and of course i've met so many more of your other colleagues um all of who've become great friends and, and really considered part of the family and uh, particularly BNR has been, uh, I feel like they've always adopted me as part of the family every time I visit in Canada, but also for the support um, over the years. But, um, you know, it, the journey really started, I suppose, as an entrepreneur about 18 years ago. And uh, that was selling my services as a professional guide, uh, leading safaris throughout Africa. But it got to a stage 16 years ago where I felt that, you know, a business that just relies on me alone has far less impact on Africa and on the world, given all the environmental challenges and all the wildlife challenges, all the community challenges that I'd experienced over the years of guiding throughout Africa. And I really got a sense of the fact that, you know, there's so much more that needs to be done. The statistics are out there that, you know, if global warming and the impact on our resources, given the ballooning world populations, particularly in Africa, um, there's going to be a scramble for resources. And it was 16 years ago that the reinforcement of the belief that tourism can really be used as a force for change and as a force for good for conservation and for the upliftment of livelihoods of uh, the people around Africa. So with that in mind, I had the opportunity to start my first safari camp uh, in Zimbabwe, and that was Somalisa Camp. And um, from there, that was in 2006. And of course, Zimbabwe was going through its own sets of challenges internally with politics, most of which are unresolved, really. But Zimbabwe has continued to do amazing conservation work and be at the forefront of looking after its wildlife. So we've been able to grow a tourism business over the last 16 years. But on the back of 2006, I went across and established myself in Botswana, where I started developing my second and third camp, and then back in Zimbabwe, developing Furthermore, today we have 15 camps spread between Zimbabwe, Botswana, and Zambia as a result of this growth. And we're about to launch our 16th camp in Botswana in the Okavango Delta. 
So the growth <laughs> has been um, has been quite something, and most of it has really been over the last eight years where we've really added on, and a lot of that is born out of the impatience of being able to be effective and have a high impact through tourism in the areas where we feel really need the most attention. So that journey has been very satisfying. Of course, there's frustrations along the way that we could do a lot more, but uh, we're very grateful that this business has grown as a result of people like uh, Butterfield and Robinson supporting us and really believing in our conservation story. Sure, Bex, that's a phenomenal journey of growth over, over just really 16-odd years now. I must say, I just want to share my first experience with an African bush camps property. Of course, we met those 20-something years ago in, in, uh, in Wangi when you were guiding for one of our groups. But shortly after Linyanti opened, should I say, in Botswana, I was up there at the camp. And, you know, in, in our position, we incredibly privileged and we get to have really amazing safari experiences. And you also get to see how, how various concessions and various operators do things quite differently and we we were at uh, Linyanti and um, we'd had just had a bush dinner and we were sitting out around a campfire and chatting and you know the wonderful stories that come out in that with the background of all the sounds of the bush it was quite fantastic and then the guide next minute there was a you know distant sound that I didn't quite pick up and the guide jumps out of his seat and he goes clicks his fingers and says that's a lion and he said let's go and I wasn't quite sure if we were being ushered back to the camp very quickly because there was a lion. But he said, let's go find it. And for me, that was the most refreshing safari experience I'd had in a long, long time. And that's the kind of, um, you know, that's the kind of experience that stayed with me with every visit to your properties. The guides have the freedom to explore and the passion. And I think that's, that just makes it such a wonderful fit. That's why I really love working with you and your, and your guides. So um, through it all, that ethos of delivering more than just, you know, a safari experience, it gives people something that's more intangible. You know, it goes beyond the conceptual knowledge. It really, safari can leave you with a very moving experience. And uh, so much of it comes from how the guides respond to things. Thank you very much, Michelle. Um, I mean, I really appreciate that you highlight the guides as integral to that magic. Um, that's what I've always believed, given my background of guiding. And today, that is the one area of our business that we really like to really invest in from a resource point of view and from a passion point of view, because we really believe that a phenomenal guide will change a good safari into an exceptional experience. And, and that's what the guiding team does. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, coming back to where we're currently at with the situation with this pandemic, we now around the world have experiences of lockdown and how that impacts our personal life, our business life, um, how we move around. And I've been wondering, you know, what's life actually like now in the camps? What's life like at Bumi or, or Somalisa? I mean, you must have a skeleton staff there. How do you keep the, the, the morale of the team up? You know, they must just be missing having visitors, you know. Um, what's it like on the ground? You know, up until the 1st of September, the camps were pretty much on idle mode. So no visitors coming, but they were opened with our staff, sweeping paths, opening and closing empty rooms, making empty beds and scrubbing decks and keeping the camps in tip top shape. Some of our guides going on game drives, patrolling making sure that, uh, you know, there weren't any incursions of poaching and reporting back, trying to work together with the authorities, 
it's almost like some of our ranges turned into our eyes, which were no longer there on the ground. But, you know, it's incredibly difficult to keep the morals up um, six months into doing the same thing over and over again, when actually your skill set and your passion is in serving people. So we've found keeping those uh, motivation levels high has been uh, an extremely challenging exercise. That's why we're very keen, as soon as our governments could allow us to accept local business under very strict uh, COVID protocols, we opened ourselves up to accepting guests as of the 1st of September. And that's made an incredible difference. When I say guests, this is the local market in country. And we did that at a significantly reduced rate. Uh, a rate that would not make us money, but um, at least would keep the staff motivated and will start getting the stuff back into an action that they are accustomed to. And that's really raised spirits up over the last uh, four or five weeks. And of course, there's the notion now that uh, Zimbabwe has opened its borders as of the 1st of September, and so has Zambia. So there is the promise of the international traveler being able to come in. But of course, The dilemma is the restrictions on the source markets. As we know, our major source markets, um, there's still some restrictions which we're hoping would lift over the next uh, sort of four weeks. But at least it's given our staff and our teams a sense of hope that tourism will come back and the jobs that we are really stretching to hold on to for everyone, it's not in vain. But it is a very difficult period. It has been, and I fear that it will continue to be um, until probably into 2021. But as I said, we have started accepting local uh, visitors. And the next move going into uh, November would be to accept regional tourism uh, since our borders will be open. And that certainly will, will help in morals, but also it will start to provide us with the revenue, even though it is very, very little, to get vehicles out, get people out into having a presence. Just having a presence alone in these areas, it makes a huge big difference in making sure that we can field any potentially legal wildlife trafficking, which has increased, by the way, during the last seven months. You can imagine that the rangers out there who are dedicated to looking after these areas with uh, reduced earnings for themselves due to the circumstances, they, they are really struggling to be able to not only feed themselves, but also to feed their families. So there's a sense of vulnerability, not just for the rangers, but for the livelihoods of the communities. And there will always be an illegal element that will take advantage of this period of time. And we have seen an increased amount of poaching, some of it. You could understand and almost pardon because people are wanting to feed their families. A lot of people have lost their jobs. So as tourism operators, we certainly have put on programs to try and mitigate that by working with the rangers to ensure that they are fed and that their families are fed. And hopefully that takes away the pressure and we've seen it make a remarkable difference. But, you know, this is the time now more than ever to partner with our local communities to make sure that we safeguard the abuse of our heritage and of our wildlife, which will be the only source of income to look forward to uh, for the future. Such an important point, Bex. And I, I think um, it's worth reiterating at this stage to, to our travelers that the importance of tourism dollars in Africa goes well beyond uh, tourism dollars in Europe, for example. I mean, we're talking about conservation. We're talking about communities upliftment. And uh, it's absolutely critical given everything you've said at the beginning and the fact that we're now into our sixth mass extinction. And it's not just about resources, it's about ecosystems, intact ecosystems that are vital for um, really planetary functioning. 
So we hold hope too that you know tourism is going to rebound. I think in the long run, Africa is going to appeal greatly to people following all of this. And the, the thirst for nature, I, I do find one of the ups of this whole experience has been refinding our sense perhaps of belonging and that longing to get back to nature and, and reconnect. Bex, what about positive lessons through all of this? Are there things that you're going to put in your toolbox to take you forward? Has this year brought some good things that, that we can adapt and uh, develop more resilience to? So for us, um, one of the focuses when we started obviously building uh, our business was to really appeal to an audience, what I call the awakened traveler, which really is the conscious traveler. But of course, when you're starting a business, you know, any business is good business. And then what we seek to do is to try and convert people into a conscious traveler. But what we've also found is that over the years, as our business has progressed, is that there is really a great need for us to foster the right kind of relationships with the trade and uh, make sure that our messaging to the end consumer who looks to come to Africa really understand what sort of a force tourism is and what good can come out of tourism. People have hard-earned income that they wish to spend. Yes, it is disposable income, but they have a choice as to how they spend that. And I think going forward, our messaging is really to say, look, we all have a responsibility towards travel. And it's not just the old rhetoric of responsible travel, but it's making sure that the awareness is out there from the time that somebody calls your office and says, I want to go on an African safari. But for our trade people like yourselves, and I know that you guys do this very well, is to be able to, to talk about the importance of traveling to Africa and what their tourism dollars actually do to the people on the ground and to the wildlife. And so for us, that speaks very much into making sure that we cement uh, solid relationships with the BNRs of this world in order to make a more meaningful difference to conservation and to our communities. We believe that by making sure that we get more of the conscious traveler, we can have available to us more resources and more influence into doing the job and, and, and basically carrying out our purpose. And, and furthermore, you know, there has been in the past this thing where people will spend two nights in each location and will try and cover as much ground as possible. Going forward, you know, we just don't believe that we should be burning Jet A1 fuel in aeroplanes and trying to cover as much ground as possible, but really starting to travel slowly to fewer places, but really getting immersed into not just the wildlife, but into the cultures and into understanding the challenges of that landscape. And it's only through that that our travelers will really get a sense of understanding of what our roles and responsibilities are, not just us being on the ground, but they too, because it is of my belief that, um, you know, we're closer to, to the wildlife here, we're closer to the communities. So we've taken up the role of custodianship, but what we are looking after here is the health of the entire globe. We're looking after the vital organs and lungs of the entire world. And we need to partner together in order to do this. We can't do it alone. And it's only through spending enough time in each area that people actually get it. So I think going forward, our aim is to make sure that we really uh, encourage people to spend more time in each area so that they can get the opportunity to have a deep and meaningful uh, understanding of what we're doing. It's not just about restoration, but it's also about having an impact and being able to, to make that contribution. 
So really, those are the big things that I think will make a very big difference going forward in in accepting a traveler that is already sensitized to the issues at hand. And then just the last thing in terms of crisis, you know, COVID-19 is not the first and it's certainly not the last crisis. And one of the things that we are starting to do going forward is to make sure that we put in place mechanisms to create a crisis fund that will help us in times of crisis such as these. And I think that's all got to be at the center of what we're all doing is what are we doing to prepare for the next pandemic? Absolutely. Sure, Bex, that's a, that's a lot to really let sink in. Wow. As always, I mean, you, you're quite visionary in your approach to these things. So, uh, you know, as a trip designer, I really welcome a lot of your ideas. And I know for us, uh, it's often quite a challenge to convince people to really slow down, despite um, BNR's logo and motto of slow down to see the world. Sometimes when it comes to Africa, people want to take in three countries in one trip. And I'm with you on that. We really need to drop it down a notch. And if there's a place and a continent to do that, it really is Africa. So, so I'd love to see more longer stays at camps and real immersive experiences uh, with less impact on on the overall environment. So that that is something also we are looking quite well into within our trip planning team. There's so many implications and so many impacts with tourism that can be negative, but on the overall side, there's more positives on the African continent with the stories. So um, it says that I should end on a fun light note. (laughs) So... um, yeah, you know, I, I did want to ask you, you know, borders open now now. What have you missed? Like where would you go if everything just opened up tomorrow? Where would you return to and why or what am I missing? Um, you know, I've been very fortunate to travel in many places around the world. And I must say outside of Africa is probably being able to really immerse myself in in traveling around the small little villages around Europe, whether it's in Italy or Spain or France. There's something exciting about these little uh, quaint medieval villages around Europe. And I've always said that, you know, each year that's kind of the equivalent of a bush fix for me to go to those sort of places and sit outside a cafe and watch the world go by. There's almost a slowness to it that I really love and enjoy. Um, I really this year missed escaping Africa's winter and going over to a warm place. Uh, And this year, of course, I was planning to be in Greece, but being there in that sort of very tropical, warm, humid climate in Europe is, is I think, one of the favorite things that I like to do. But of course, over the last few years, I've I've started really appreciating what's on our doorstep in Africa. And uh, Africa has for me, countries that I've had love affairs with for years and been fortunate enough over the last five years in particular to start ticking them off. Beautiful. In your 18 years of safari experience as a, as a professional guide and then exploring sites for, for your various camps, what and, and why uh, makes for you the most incredible safari experience? Or should I say where? Has it been a migration? Has it been seeing the gorillas? Is it, is it a bird? Like what has struck you, like moved you to the core? I guess my most impactful safari experience was, was when I lived in Matusodona, where I was guiding and managing a small little six-roomed lodge, which was floating on Lake Kariba. And every day that I was there, part of my job was to track wild black rhino. That was the thing to do, you know, black rhino are highly endangered 
And every morning I went out there, I would track these magnificent um, historic beasts. And, and when you do find them, uh, whether it's after 30 minutes or an hour, two hours, sometimes even four hours, it becomes such a satisfying thing because you're on foot on the ground. And whilst you're tracking rhino, you're likely to encounter lion, you're likely to encounter elephant, buffalo. And these are sort of the obstacle courses, if I can put them that way, in order to get to the rhino. In particular, I have a memory of being able to go out in a very excited way when there was a report that uh, one of the rhinos, uh, for the first time in years, had successfully had a calf. And we managed to, to track this uh, female and the calf and uh, Spain pre- proceeded to spend about 15 to 20 minutes with it. And yes, we had a bit of an altercation with it when the wind changed, but being able to see this tiny, minute, perfect replica of this humongous beast out in the wild was really, really special and very unique. That really does stand out, um, I guess, as, as something that I've really experienced. But, you know, Africa has got so many different places, faces, and so many different experiences. In February, and I may have told you this, but um, something that I've always wanted to do was go to the Congo and experience the forest there and, of course, uh, the gorillas there. And that in itself was just mind-blowing, yeah. uh, really a life-altering experience. Incredible. You know, it's uh, it's so amazing you ma- mention um, Matusadona like that because I remember the floating pontoons. We stayed there a couple of times, actually. And the black rhino experience was extraordinary. Um, at some point, there was a, a young rhino that was in a boma. And I put my hand out and its little lips. And that was the first time I really understood the difference between the black rhino and the white rhino in, in the lip structure because the little sort of hooked tensile at the end of its nose curled around my finger. And it was quite an extraordinary experience. So, yeah, you've really brought back a memory there for me. Um, our world is so, so special. I, I don't think I told you the story. Last year I was in Madagascar, and for the first time I really got an understanding of extinction. A highlight of my trip to Madagascar was seeing a very rare, well, probably the world's rarest bird of prey at the moment, the Malagasy fish eagle. And it was this lone bird atop uh, a rocky outcrop uh, out at sea. And it, it was, incre- you know, it just I could feel the loneliness of this. There's something like 10 or 20 pairs, mating pairs, viable mating pairs left in Madagascar. And I looked at this as we floated by the rock and we, we sort of waited and watched and then it took flight and let out, you know, one of its haunting cries. And I really understood. Um, it felt like I saw what extinction was because in my lifetime that bird will not make it. So, yeah, I mean, our continent is full of these sort of amazing stories of success, but also heartbreak. So what we do is actually so, so important. Thank you, Bex, for what you do, for being the ambassador of, of everything that's good on this, on this wonderful continent. And, yeah, I look forward to um, the new world and bringing more people to show and share this really special experience through, through phenomenal guides that, that uh, just share the ethos that we all have. So thank you. Thank you very much, Michelle, and a uh, big thank you to you for your relentless support over the years. And uh, the BNR team out there have been absolutely incredible at really being supportive of the work that we do. So thank you to you all, and uh, long may that continue. Thanks, Bex. We'll catch up soon, hey? Real time over coffee, and you can be out of your pajamas then. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Michelle. Thanks for tuning in. Music for this podcast was provided by Lobo Loco and Kevin McLeod via the Free Music Archive.